here we go. Our scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. First John, the book, John uses the lowest frequency of imperatives or commands per number of words used. We said this a few weeks ago. He uses only 10 commands in the entire letter and per, per amount of words, it's the lowest frequency in all of the New Testament and there are only 10 of them here in First John. And so that tells us a few things, likely from an aged apostle as John is, that when he does command, when he does make an imperative, he doesn't use them lightly. So it makes sense for those who are his readers, his listeners, pay attention to them. The, the first one he used was in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, to not love the world. If you look in verses 26 through 29, our passage this morning, he adds two more. And if you add in verse 24, then you have three. So the, the last section of what John has been doing, he adds the bulk of his commands into that sh section. And it shows us what God or what John really wants from his readers. In verse 24, he says it, the command is to abide. In verse 27, again, abide, 28 again abide. Three commands, verse 24 to 29, out of the ten total commands in all of this letter to abide. After the false claims from false Christ, after saying that it's the last hour and speaking of the Antichrist and their confession of what they think about Jesus, John pushes for one particular thing from his readers, that they abide. And that abiding that he speaks of is abiding, spoken of in these verses, that produces something. It yields something. It, it makes something come about in the life of believers who abide. It yields confidence and righteousness. That is right living. So in response to the, the Antichrist claims and their attempts to pull people away from fellowship, John wants his readers to hold on to the truth, hold on to the fellowship that they have, and by keeping in Christ, by abiding. Now, John makes the intentions of his readers to his readers very clear in verse 26. I write to you about these things who are trying to deceive you. He, he not only says, I'm writing to you guys, but I also want you to know what they are doing. They are trying to deceive you. The, the people who are the opponents here are not neutral in this situation. They have left. They don't remain in the congregation anymore, and they're organized. They, they have some sort of uh, they don't have a probably written up statement of faith, but it seems like they have a statement of faith, right? They're saying something about Jesus. They have something to say about the doctrine of Christ. They have something to say to this church. They've likely organized together as maybe another church. And here they are. They are trying to do something. Their intentions are not neutral. 
They are, John says, liars and don't keep their lies to themselves. Sin is like that. Its very nature is to not keep to itself. It likes to spread. It likes to continue to compound and multiply. And this is what these liars are doing, is that they're not keeping to themselves. That would be one thing John would have to address. But these liars aren't keeping to themselves, and they don't often do that. And so they're spreading their lies and trying to deceive John's readers. And because they are antichrist, as John has already labeled them in the previous section, they're not content to leave the gospel alone. They're not content to leave the doctrine of Christ alone. They're not content to leave Christ's very fellowship, the church alone either. And Jesus doesn't appreciate this, but neither does John. He's not content to let them hassle his people. He's not content to just identify them as antichrist, to point out that they exist in their presence. He wants to point out their intentions, and their intentions are to deceive. He points out the danger. That they're trying to deceive and that there's some danger associated with this is not surprising. Where there are sheep, there will be wolves. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time, and listen to what he says in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Again, where there are sheep, there are wolves. Here's a little bit maybe more surprising what he says. They're not going to be sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. And what are they attempting to do? To draw away the disciples after them. That's the goal. Jesus warned of false Christ aiming to pull people after them away from following Jesus. Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He warns Timothy chapter 3 verse 13. It says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. And what are they doing? Deceiving and being deceived. Where there's sheep, there's going to be wolves that are going to be there. And the Antichrist that John has spoken about in 1 John are doing exactly what John expects them to do. They are trying to deceive. They're trying to pull away from fellowship, the fellowship that John had been a part of. And John is doing what the faithful do. He's not okay with just saying, hey, there are wolves out there. The Antichrists are at work. He steps up to protect them. And so he writes to them to instruct them for their good, to keep them from being pulled away and from being deceived. Here's what John does. He calls them to abide. 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, earlier in chapter 2, he says that some of the people that were in your midst, that were among you, they have now left. And that they're claiming other things. They have gone. They no longer remain. But what does remain matters more, makes all the difference in the world. And here's what he says remains, the anointing that you received. We take this to to be the anointing of the the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, these are connected where Jesus says that he has been anointed and he's received the Spirit, and these are connected for Jesus in Luke 4. I think John speaks of them similarly. There's parallels with the way John speaks of this anointing in 1 John and the way Jesus speaks of the giving of the Spirit and the role of the Spirit in John chapter 14 through 
16. So this anointing, again, is an anointing of the Spirit. They've received the Spirit. It remains in them. This is not a special one-time anointing for a specific group of people. This is the Holy Spirit that is given to all who believe in Jesus. And John says that because this anointing remains, they are in no need for anyone to teach them. But what does John mean by that? That's an interesting thing to say. What could he be getting at? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul speaks of pastors, teachers, prophets who are given to be teachers, to equip the church for the work of ministry. Paul gives the qualifications for pastor, elder, and he says that they are to be, for the sake of their church, able to teach. So is John opposing Paul, we think, no, of course John's not opposing Paul. They're all together. They need to be read together. Certainly in this very letter itself, John is teaching them. The very nature of it is a, a, to teach them. He doesn't say to them, hey, you know that anointing you have? I, I know I've been talking a little about this fellowship, but you already have it. You don't need anybody to teach you, so forget about the whole fellowship thing. You've got all you need on your own. You don't need to gather. You don't need fellowship with others who have fellowship with God. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, well, just forget about church because you have all that you need. And he doesn't contradict Paul. John never envisions, never envisions a spiritual life apart from community. It's just a repeated uh, theme of his in 1 John. That, that when you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with others. He, he never sees it as spiritual life as apart from community. It's those who have left them that are out of sync, not those who have remained. His fellowship that he speaks of with God is a fellowship with others, and he wants them to remain. So what does he mean? Well, there is a sense that this is true for all believers, that there is no need to teach them who have the Spirit. If you look in John chapter 14, listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26. He says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or if you look ahead in chapter 16, verse 13, he says of the spirit of truth when he comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will clear to you the things that are to come. John writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I, I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you, you do know it. You know the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens eyes to the truth, to the identity of who Jesus is, of that He is the Son of God, the Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens eyes to the, the greatness and glory of Jesus, to, to His work, to what it's done, actually being effective and being something that matters ultimately. The Holy Spirit opens eyes to that reality. It opens eyes. He opens eyes to the reality of the gospel, that it's true and that it could be true for me, that Jesus had died for, for me. And so there's there's a sense in that way there's, there's nothing to be taught to believers, to be taught to believers apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that that is the one thing necessary, and that's the one thing they can't get to apart from the Spirit. So in that sense, any teaching is taught by the Spirit. Any teaching after that time, after conversion, is then filtered and confirmed by that same Spirit that indwells all believers as, as Jesus described the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So truth ultimately matters. One commentator says this, that he alone can be a witness to himself so as to convince our hearts that what our ears receive has come from him. And I think that this might be what John is getting at when he says that you have no need for anyone to teach you. But the context with which John says this 
in verse 27 matters. It gives us great insight and clarity into what John is saying. John is speaking in response to the Antichrist who have said certain things about who Jesus is, who have a teaching, and who he says here are trying to deceive. And in response to that, here's John's words. They have their own truth claims. They have their own message. They have their own teaching about Jesus, namely that he's not the Christ. And they're using all of that to pull you away from the truth, to pull you away from what you've already received. It's possible that this group is even claiming that they have some sort of special revelation from God that they need to listen to. Hey, we have this anointing too, and we have special knowledge from God, special revelation from God that you guys need, and we can teach you about it. It's possible that they were claiming that. And John comes to them and says, you don't need that. You have what you need. He affirms them that on the subject of Jesus that they have been given all that they need to know about Him, that He is the Christ, that He is the Word of eternal life. They have been taught about how they can have fellowship with God, that Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection restores them to fellowship with God, which also restores them to fellowship with one another. They know that Jesus is their advocate now, standing on their side because He is their propitiation, has turned away the wrath of God from them because He sacrificed Himself for their sins. They have everything necessary for salvation. John is not saying here, you are omniscient, so you don't need anybody to teach you, or you won't need any teachers to contradict the rest of the New Testament that talks about teachers. He's not saying those things. He's not saying you can't grow, you can't learn, you can't be taught. He is saying that the false teachers are wrong, and that you don't need to listen to their teaching, that they're not needed, and they're not needed namely because you have the Spirit, which not only has opened your eyes to the reality of the gospel and the identity of Jesus, but is also helping you confirm truth that you have. I think that we could say of this time in John that this is John's kind of Galatians 1 moment. You remember in Galatians 1, Paul talks to the Galatians, there's some false gospels that are being spread, and Paul says to them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, if anyone, if I or an angel from heaven come to you and try to give you a gospel contrary to the one you already received, the one I already gave you, think about John's words here. Remember what I delivered to you? That's what I've seen, which I've heard, which I, I beheld concerning the word of life. And here's Paul saying, you remember the gospel that I spoke to you? Don't let anybody go back on that. If they do, let them be accursed. And so here John has his Galatians moment. You don't need that teaching. Or similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And John is saying something similar here. Yeah, you have no need for someone to teach you. You have the foundation that you need. You don't need that. They don't need the Antichrist teaching. They don't need uh, what they're putting forward as truth or as revelation from God. But they do need what they already have. They have this anointing. They have it from the Spirit. And it seems as if John goes on to then remind them of that teaching. Or maybe we could say that he teaches them about what they already know. Verse 27, we read it again. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So John gives us, I think, a proposal, the alternate, the way to keep from being deceived by the Antichrist. He gives us an imperative, and that imperative is to abide. And how simple, how, how, how different from the Antichrist. They're saying, accept this teaching, perhaps apart from this teaching, you can't be right with God. 
You need this special knowledge that we have, this revelation that we have from God. And John comes and says, in light of all of that, you need to abide in what you already know. You need to abide in Jesus' teaching. You need to walk in the way that Jesus walked. The content of the Holy Spirit, the anointing's teaching here is simple. It's not live on your own, you have all you need. It's abide in Jesus. That is to abide in the fellowship you have with Jesus, which is a fellowship with others. Remain in that fellowship is what he's talking to. Now, when, jo- when John uses that word abide, I mean, it would be striking if he didn't have that John 15 you know, thought come into his mind. If he didn't think back to that upper room where, where Jesus had gathered his disciples and, and told them, as he did in John 15, about this, this vine and this branch and this image of the vine and the branch going together. And, and that image does show us, I think, a lot about abiding. Because branches abide by relying on vines. That is how they live or they don't live at all. And abiding is that. It is to look to Jesus, the vine, for everything. It is to be fully dependent, fully sustained, fully held up by, supported by the vine, or to not be supported at all. It's learning all sorts of things that we could see in the Scripture to maybe like seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because you know your Father in heaven, He knows all your other needs, and He's going to care for them, but you seek the kingdom of heaven. That's abiding. It's learning to go to God for help in our time of need. It's learning what Paul had to painfully learn through a thorn, that God's grace is sufficient. Even in the midst of our great weaknesses, it's sufficient. That is abiding. It's remembering. It's obeying. It's applying. It's leaning on Jesus. It's looking to Him. It's collapsing into His arms. It's looking at Jesus as if He is everything. He is our life. He is all. It's abiding. It's simple, right? I like what one now, this is John Newton, one former pastor, long ago says, that there is likewise a simplicity of dependence. That, that's abiding in, in a nutshell, right? The simplicity of dependence. Unbelief, and just think of the Antichrist here and what they've been saying. Un- unbelief is, is continually starting objections, magnifying and multiplying difficulties, but faith in the power and promises of God inspires a noble simplicity and casts every care upon him who is able and has engaged to support and to provide. John says, abide. Abide in him. The, the problem is not understanding abiding, though. The, the problem isn't even knowing how to do it. The, the problem is, is actually doing it. it. It is simple, but it is certainly not easy. The difficulty is in actually abiding. That's why the Holy Spirit has to be given to teach us, as he said that he teaches us here, to abide. We need that Spirit and the Spirit's ministry at work so that we can abide. Because the alternative to abiding is so easy, so natural to us. That is, in some capacity, in some way or another, of thinking that somehow we're enough. That we have all the supply we need internally. That we don't need to look elsewhere. In our prayerlessness, or our neglect of community, or our anxieties, or our fears, they all show that we think we're enough, that we're able to handle it on our own. Vines and branches work together if branches are in need and fully depend. And that's how Jesus has us come to Him. You come in need. You come to depend. Branches can't root down themselves. 
Now, there's probably like a botanist here that's like, yes, they can. There's this one. I don't know. As far as I know, branches can't root themselves. That's the image anyway. We're going with it. Branches weren't meant to root themselves down. They were meant to find support and supply from the vine, to be rooted in something. And in Christ, fully dependent branches, fully needy and dependent people are met with the fully sufficient vine. And John says, abide in that. Abide in Him. Now, abiding is such a vital concept that the Holy Spirit teaches it, and that John teaches it, and that John is teaching those who are abiding in it, we're assuming that's the the audience he's writing to, right? He's writing to those who are abiding in it, he thinks, at least. He he, he teaches those who are abiding in it to keep abiding in it. It, it, It's an important concept. In verse 28, he says, and now, little children, abide in Him. He draws them close with affection again and says to them, like, listen, guys, please, like, abide in Him. That's what you got to keep doing. Again, here's another one of His imperatives that He doesn't just sling out there all over the place, and it's, again, abide in Him. And out of ten imperatives, to make three of them the same is a little bit strange. It's, it matters. It matters to John. I mean, he, John 15 is in his head. I'm, I'm guessing rattling around in his brain is, apart from you, I can't do nothing, so I have to abide in you. But if I abide in you, I'm going to bear much fruit. And part of that fruit he talks about here in verse 28, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at sh- in shame at his coming. Now, since Jesus has ascended, there's been this constant confession of the church of Jesus' return. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when they had said these things, that is Jesus, as the disciples, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, they stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And since that time, the believers have been going out and proclaiming that Jesus is coming again. There's a return. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will. There's a certainty about it. Those disciples that saw Jesus lifted up are, are certain that Jesus is going to return, and they speak about it. But the thought of Jesus' return often strikes dread in hearts. Fear. Shame. Makes us shrink. There's a holy judge coming, and we're all sinners, and so there, there's a natural like impulse to shrink back at the thought of that. And the description of Jesus' coming that we find is enough Revelation 6.16, to make the most powerful on the earth cry out to be covered with the mountains and rocks lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. A a terrifying description is given in Revelation chapter 19. And then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, they arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. You see why maybe somebody would say, like, I'd rather the mountains crush me than to face this man. 
It's terrifying. Now, knowing that a holy judge like this is, is going to return with, with wrath is enough to make any shrink with dread and fear and shame. Because we know, like, we don't add up. We're, we're, we're sinful before Him. We're going to be exposed. And so it's even made into a joke of sorts. Right? Is that what you want to be doing when Jesus returns? That's a joke because we know. Like, what we're doing right now is probably not okay when Jesus returns. Like, there's a, there's an, a, a sense of shrinking at shame at that. But what if what we just read in Revelation 19, what if that description is your champion going out to battle? What if that judge comes to the earth and he's already judged you and declared you righteous? What if that one who's coming to conquer has already invited you into this marriage supper that's going to last for eternity? What if that king is not only king of kings, but your king? Then all of a sudden, that's the alternative to shrinking in shame and fear and dread. That's the reality for those who abide in him. He is their king. He is their judge. To abide is to know Jesus as that returning judge, the one who's going to be arrayed as he's arrayed. He's going to come and he's going to conquer. But to know him and to abide in him is to know him not only as returning judge, but also as advocate, as propitiation, the one who took my wrath that I deserved and turned it away from the Father off of me and he absorbed it himself. That's to abide, to know that when we confess sins to Him that they've truly been forgiven and cleansed so that I have now no reason in Christ to shrink in shame upon His return. This is why if we abide in Him, we can sing out, bold I approach the eternal throne to claim the crown through Christ my own. You don't claim the crown from God, that's anathema, right? Unless, unless you know Jesus is there, And has already declared you righteous, one of his own, extended out his inheritance to you as a fellow heir of his kingdom. Then you can claim the crown through Christ your own. That's abiding. It's the same kind of confidence that that Hebrews speaks about when it says you should approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you can find grace to help you in your time of need, Hebrews 4.16. It's the same kind of confidence that Paul has when he speaks to the Philippians. He says, hey, guess what? Departing would be far better. Because he's not shrinking in fear at that departure. He says to die is Christ, and that actually brings him great joy. He wants that. He desires that. That abiding will lead you to that kind of confidence. It's the kind of confidence that you could have that John has as he ends Revelation. He, He sees all this, and what does he say? Oh, man, that was weird. No, he doesn't say that. He says, amen. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's abiding enough to have confidence and to say, like, we see what you just showed us. That was, that was weird, but man, we want it. Come. Don't you want that? We could say, joke around about the return for us. Is that what we want to be doing when Jesus comes? As if shame is going to make us live righteous lives and abide in Jesus. It never will. And it'll never lead to the confidence of Jesus' return. If we just go around shaming one another or even shaming ourselves, it's never going to lead to confidence. Shame can never produce that at his coming. Receiving Jesus in your heart at a church camp because you got the hell scared out of you, that's not going to lead to this kind of confidence. Rededicating 
life because, again, you're scared, you're worried about this return and thinking, like, maybe if I make another decision, I make sure I have a verification again that when he comes, I'm okay. Like, maybe that, that will never lead to that kind of confidence. The only thing that can do it is a real relationship with Jesus, and we call that abiding. Amen. We abide when we repent and believe in Jesus, when we see Jesus as everything. Who are you abiding in? What are you abiding in? Is it something that can actually give you confidence upon his return? Here's what we know from John already. Darkness is passing away and true light's already shining. If it's darkness, we know that's not going to abide. The world, the things of the world, the desires of the world, those can't. They're already passing away. John says, here's what remains. It's those who do the will of God. And here's the will of God. He said it three times in command form in the last couple of verses. Abide in Jesus. This is his will, that we'd abide in Jesus. And if we abide in Jesus, it yields something. It produces something in us. Confidence. The thought that, amen, come Lord Jesus. And this confidence makes the truth of Jesus' return a precious truth, a great thought, a glorious thought, a hopeful thought. The thought of coming glory in a great future. What a gift and a privilege that that God would give to those who trust in him, that if you abide, you can have the confidence, that sinners can have confidence in his coming. That flows from abiding. But John gives something else. And not only do we have confidence in his return, that flows from abiding, but abiding also produces righteousness, that is, right living. So in 1 John, back to 1 John, verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John is getting at the same idea as abiding, but he switches the analogy to to being born. But again, like maybe he just figures like you have the anointing and he teaches you, so you can handle the switch of analogy here in the middle of this. No big deal. This is not a new concept for John. In John chapter 1, he says in verse 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, in other words, they couldn't do it, nor of will of the flesh, nor will of the man, but of God. He says this to Nicodemus, a couple pages over in in chapter 3, verse 3, Nicodemus comes to him, he says, like, we know you're from God, no one can do these things unless God is with him, and Jesus says, gets right to it, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a righteous man, a teacher of the law, he was part of God's people, I mean, there's all these signs that would point to saying, Nicodemus, let's affirm him, let's give him that assurance that John talks about here, like, Nicodemus should have assurance, if anybody could, he could, but Jesus doesn't do that, he says, actually, unless you're born again, you don't get to see the kingdom. Brings up some questions. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. You can do nothing apart from the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide, you'll bear much fruit. And the same concept, different kind of image. And so what John does is he takes that a step further to say, if you are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, if you have that anointing, if that's true for your life, then he takes it another step. Here's what also will be true. You will practice righteousness, that is right living, morally acceptable behavior, morally acceptable living in 
the sight of God. John returns them back to the foundation of his warnings and imperatives. He says, you know, verse 29, he is righteous. He takes them back to Jesus, the righteous one, and that's where we start. Chapter 2, verse 2, he's the righteous propitiation, so his righteous blood can cleanse and forgive sins. Both there, right? Cleanse and forgive so that you can walk forward. You're not imprisoned anymore. Chapter 2, verse 1, he is an advocate because his blood cleanses and forgives. He stands as a righteous advocate, giving us power to obey his will as we live on this earth, struggling with the very presence of sin in our lives. He was righteous in his life and death, and those who follow him then ought to walk in the same way he did with him as an advocate on their side, helping them walk in righteousness all along the way. And so knowing and abiding in Jesus means recognizing Him as the righteous one, Him as the one we need, Him as the righteous advocate and propitiation, and taking that righteous life that we see in Him on ourselves. We're born of Him. As a child bears the marks of a parent, so those born of the righteous one will bear the marks of righteousness in their living. They will practice righteousness. One author says this, But we cannot be in the light about our union with the perfect righteousness which covers our sin. That is to be in union with Christ. We're we're abiding in Him. You can't do that without simultaneously being in the light about the power available to transform our lives and displace our sin. We cannot be in union with a half Christ, as the Puritans would say. So if you know Him as righteous, you then practice righteousness. Those are connected. It's the anointing that opens eyes to the identity of Jesus as the righteous one, the Christ, the Son of God. It's the Spirit that shows Him as righteous, and it's the Spirit who teaches us to abide and practice righteousness. And abiding in Jesus always produces righteousness of walking in the light as He is in the light, of keeping His word, of walking in the same way in which He has walked, of being in the truth, of loving one another, of not loving the world, of abiding. The Holy Spirit teaches us all those things. So we want to ask the question, if we want to know if we're abiding, if we want to know if we can have confidence at His coming, then, then some of what John says is look at your life. Because if you're born of righteousness, then you ought to be practicing righteousness. Does your life resemble His life? Is it full of the righteousness that was all through Jesus' life. You see righteousness in your life as He is righteous. Are you walking in the light? Do you look like Him? Do you look like part of the family? You, you take on the family resemblance. Are you born of Him? John, John says, like, you can be sure then. That's what, he, verse 29, you, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure. Like, there's some assurance that He's giving here to these readers that they're on track in light of all the Antichrist and what they have said. He says, well, you can be sure. And here's one of the ways that you can be sure. How can you be sure? You recognize him as righteous. If you recognize him as the righteous one, then you're going to start producing righteousness, practicing righteousness, because you're seeing him rightly and you see yourself in light of him. John knows no half Christ. He offers no half Christ. But he also knows no half community who would recognize Jesus as righteous and not practice that righteousness in their lives, in community, in fellowship. Now, here's what's so important here. Here's what we must notice, is that righteous living is a result of being born, not the cause. 
We need to be careful not to flip this because we so often do. We, we flip the order here. And we think that if I'm right and living in a right way and show my righteousness, then that will then make me acceptable to God. In other words, we could say it this way. If I behave the right way or practice right living, then God will receive me into his family. And that's not what John says. That's not the Christ that he's given. That's not abiding. We don't want to flip it. You are born and then you practice. You are born and, and, and your birth, you, you bear the marks of the family. There's no other way to go about it. But let's say you flipped it. And you've tried to gain your standing before God to be part of the family with your righteous living. Let's say you've failed to practice righteousness and you've walked in the dark and you haven't lived a, a morally upright life in the sight of God. Let's say that you're not actively abiding in Jesus, that you're even thr- shrinking right now at the thought of His return. And we, we talked about how fearsome this, this one who's going to come riding on this horse is and you, you just shrink at His return. Here's what we know, that Jesus is still righteous. And it's still true that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And that if he has forgiven us and cleansed us, if we're his, if we look to him in that way, then he's also our advocate. And that if we put our trust in him, we have one who stands before the Father who advocates on our behalf, that that his blood actually pleads a, a better word for us, that his blood has turned away the Father's wrath. Here's what we know. We don't earn our way into that. We're, we're born into that. But Jesus holds out to us the invitation. Still, even if we've messed it up and flipped the order, even if we haven't been abiding, even if we shrink at the thought of His return, here's what John's command is. It still stands, abide in Him. The invitation to blackened branches is to come and find life in the vine. That apart from Him, you can still do nothing. But if you abide in Him, and the invitation is, come abide in Him, then you will bear much fruit. If you're abiding, here's what John says. Abide. Keep at it. Keep continuing. Keep remaining. Keep abiding. Because here's what we all need to learn. Regardless of how long we have been abiding, regardless of how long we have been His, here's what we need to continue to learn and relearn the simplicity of dependence. John says, you've got to learn to abide. So church, as we think through the word, let's together receive John's imperative and do this simple thing, though not easy, and let's do it together. Let's abide. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are coming back. You make promises and you keep them. And those angels on the day of your ascension into heaven were not wrong. You will return. And your return is going to mean a lot of different things, uh, depending on where we stand in relation to you. For those among us today who are terrified of that idea, 
of having all of their sin laid bare before you and judged and to actually receive what they deserve from a holy God for their sin. For those who that thought makes them tremble or shrink back or even maybe scoff and roll their eyes and, and not even believe that that's a real thing, God. If, if they are there, I pray that they would run to you, Jesus, and run out of the way of your wrath for their sin and into safety, which you have provided for us. I pray they would understand the depth of their sin and that they would see your goodness and your love provided for them and that they would run to you. It seems such a strange thing to run to the judge, to run to the one who is holy when we are sinful, but Jesus, that is who you are. You are not only the one who hates our sin and will punish it forever. You are the one who loves us because we are sinners and runs into the middle of our mess to save us and to rescue us. And you put on human skin to do that. And you subjected yourself to all that it means to be a human. You were even tempted in all the same ways that we were, yet you never gave in to sin. You lived the holy and perfect life that we cannot and you gave up your body to the wrath of your Father so that we wouldn't have to experience that, God. And so uh, please open hearts and minds today, Lord. If, if anyone here is afraid of your judgment, God, please communicate through your Holy Spirit to them that they do not have to receive that, that they can be spared, that they can be set free from the power of sin in their lives, that they can be forgiven for all of the sins of their past and all of the sins in their future by simply trusting in you that you have taken care of that for them on the cross. And God, for those of us here today who know you, who love you, who would already call you king today, please help us to abide. We know that you're coming back and we look forward to that day, and I pray that we would all be able to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and that we would long for that day when you punish all that deserves to be punished, when you restore all that you created and give us a new heaven and a new earth, and when you restore us and take this sinful poison completely out of our hearts so that we are pure and we can look you in the face without shame. Lord, we can't wait for that day. But until then, I pray that we would abide, that we would dig our roots in deep into your word so that we don't forget who you are, so that we don't forget our coming hope, so that we don't forget our purpose, so that we don't forget to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate, so that we don't forget our mission to take this good news to everyone around us. Lord, we want to abide in you. We want to abide through your word, we want to abide in prayer so that every time we're worried and forget that you're the ruler of the universe and we panic, that we would cast our cares on you and you would lift us up above the things of this world that pass away. We want to abide in you through your people, through Christian fellowship, depending on one another, helping encourage one another to protect each other from sin. Lord, we need each other and your Holy Spirit draws us together. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your body all these parts that we need to give us strength and to help us nourish on you, the head, Jesus. You are so good to us. 
Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for being raised from the dead so that we don't even have to fear death. Death is gain. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing a response to the gospel?